This is the Future of HR podcast, episode three. The best leaders who I would argue are the ones you really want to work with are those who are going to constantly be learning. They're going to be taking a beginner's mindset. They're going to be seeking advice and guidance, and they're going to seek out the people who are going to tell them not only what they want to hear, but what they don't want to hear and what they need to hear. Why is it important that we speak truth to power? How can you redesign your current role to supercharge your career? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Holly Tyson. Holly is the Chief People Officer at Cushman Wakefield, which is a global commercial real estate firm with over $9 billion in revenue and 50,000 employees across 60 countries. Holly is an experienced HR executive and has led global HR functions for Zebra Technologies, Dick Sporting Goods, and The Brinks Company. Holly's a data-driven business leader with a particular focus on transformation, and she is known for being authentic, not afraid to take risks, speak her mind, and challenge the status quo. Today, I'm going to ask Holly about how and when you should speak truth to power, her advice for aspiring chief people officers, and how to supercharge your career without changing jobs, and so much more. Holly, great to see you, and thank you for joining the Future of HR podcast. How are you? Thank you. Hi, JP. Great to see you. <laughs> it's great to see you too. Thank you for uh, spending time with us today. I am really happy to have you in the show because you have been somebody not only who has been a mentor and friend to me, but you're somebody who really has inspired a lot of people across the HR field. And I know you're going to do the same today in our call. So I'm excited about this. Let's jump into it. I'm going to kind of hit you with a more personal question to start. So tell us about how you grew up and how that's influenced you and your leadership style and your career. I grew up outside of New York City, and probably the most notable part of my upbringing is that I am an identical twin. So that was that's definitely a huge part of part of who I am. And also, my twin sister and I were raised by. She was not a single mom. My parents are still together, but my father traveled a hundred percent, basically. So he was gone a lot, actually working in the HR field for the some of the predecessors mm. to PeopleSoft and Workday, so HR IT in the early days. But my mom actually was an investment broker and worked at a firm near Wall Street. And so and that was in the seventies and the eighties when women were not in investment brokering worlds. And so she she actually introduced us and gave us a view to the corporate world. And that was actually really quite meaningful in terms of helping me figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I went down wow. to college in the South, down in Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, had a double major in English and psychology, both of which I use every day still. And we can go into that if that's interesting. And then I got a, a master's degree back up in New York City in organizational psychology. And I definitely use that. And that kind of launched me into my into my career. But I think that's that's kind of me in a really quick nutshell. I graduated high school with the same kids. I went to 
uh, kindergarten with, which is a really, I think, unique experience. I have given my children the opposite of that experience, having moved them a ton with my career. But I think that both of those life choices have pros and cons with them. Yeah, I appreciate you being open and sharing a little more about that. And I think let's talk about your mom a little bit because our parents are really influential in who we are and having those role models and maybe just talk a little more about what your mom went through mm-hmm. and how that has prepared you to be an executive in war, in a world that is still male dominated. Even if you are a CHRO and CHROs are predominantly female, they are the majority of female CHROs, but the rest of the executive team is probably not. Right. That's and right. so even though we want more equality and diversity, we're not there yet. So talk to me about what it was like growing up with her and just seeing her, really handle herself and thrive in a tough environment? It's a great question. You know, in a lot of those circumstances, you learn more through osmosis or by watching than anything kind of being given to you. Um, You know, I still remember my mom putting on these hideous little suits with the bow tie shirts that were supposed to make it look like she's wearing a tie, but she's not. And trying to really back then, it was the women were trying to be men. And, and so she would walk into environments where she had to be tough as nails and, um, and act like a man, be as, act like I should, I should say the, the prototypical masculine stereotype and really operate like that. And so when we were, you know, younger, even younger in our careers, my sister and I, you know, that would be the advice. And and for a time, I think that was necessary. What I, what's been really nice, actually, as I've progressed in my career, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but um, I would not ask. Thank you. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. There you go. Thank you. Um, but you know what's what's nice is that that whole kind of stereotypical behavior pattern I think has changed as we have evolved as society, but also in business, where being masculine is not the only accepted leadership profile or even just business profile that showing emotion and empathy and humanity has become much more prevalent. But gosh, I saw her have to take a lot, take a lot and deal with a lot. So when I, by the time I started in my career, I was, I was geared up, you know, I had my armor on. Um, And actually in my early days, I recall coming out of the gate, pretty super buttoned up, super, direct and super kind of not, not very warm. It, it could have come across cold. And that was basically because I had seen that be, be modeled. And that was one of the things that I had to adjust in my early days as a consultant is it's okay to chat someone up before you go, before you go right for the, right for the, the topic at hand. And so that was interesting. And that was just within the first few years of my career, how much things had changed between my mom's generation and mine. Yeah, and it sounds like you've learned to adapt your style, but it, we are in a better place now where hopefully we're not stereotyping mm-hmm. certain types of behaviors as masculine or feminine. It's just leadership, right? And getting That's results. That's right. And That's right. So let's talk a little bit more about your early career because you know you are a CHRO and you have been multiple times over. Many of us who are listening are like, I want to be a CHRO. But I'm interested to know some of the skills you developed early in your career and how they're still relevant in your role today. You know, it's a really good question. And I started by saying that I, I use both of my majors in undergrad, English and psychology every day. But I also learned, I also use my consulting skills every day. 
So my first five years out of grad school, I worked at Accenture, which, well, back then it was Anderson Consulting. And I basically think I got 10 years of experience in five years. And that was just through sheer hours work. Mostly I, I learned how to learn as a consultant. So, you know, you get thrown into these circumstances. I reflect back and I'm just, I'm so grateful. And I got to be in not only a fly on the wall, but I got to be in the room and boardrooms, mostly with CIOs and CHROs, not always CEOs, but to be able to be in the decision-making room early on in those formative years and to be able to take in a lot of information, you know, consultants go in and they kind of, they interview a bunch of people and they, then you gather a bunch of information and then you look through and try to sort out what's most important. That skill set, which I actually started honing as an English major, it's the same thing. You read thousands of pages and then look for a theme, create a thread, create a mm-hmm. hypothesis and sell it. That's basically consulting. And those skills, along with project management, were really formative. And I still use all of them today. So I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful for that starting point. Yeah. So it sounds like consulting was a really important starting point for you. Did Coming out of grad school, did you think you'd go to HR or did you want to go consulting first? And how did you view HR at that point in time? Because I think my bias, and I did consulting, I started, I did internal first and then went consulting. Yeah. And there was always a little bit of, oh, the consultants were driving revenue and HR is HR. You know, mm-hmm. like it wasn't really cool. It took me a few years later before I realized all the cool stuff was happening in HR. I wanted to get back to that. But how did you think about it back then? I actually, I had no intention of being in HR. I, you know, this was, this was a long time ago. This was in the nineties. And, you know, the, oftentimes as consultants, we would go in and we would do the stuff that some of the folks in the HR roles weren't either either qualified, capable, or willing to do. And so I wasn't sure I wanted to move into HR because that had been what I'd seen. And I think two things. One, the willing piece of that is, is notable. Oftentimes you need to bring in someone from the outside to be the bad guy and to make the tough decisions and actually mm-hmm. be able to, to separate and not have to maintain ongoing relationships because that's what you have to do when you are in an organization. So that's one piece. Um, you know, the other piece is, you know, back then, and it's gotten much, much better or evolved a lot now, there were some organizations that had really strategic people in HR roles. Some of the kind of notable academy companies like the Pepsis and and GEs. And, you know, I ended up working at Bristol-Myers Squibb. I would put them up there as well. But a lot of companies weren't there yet. And so, you know, I think there continues to be a continuum of human resources, everything from the super strategic business-focused financially oriented, you know, the strategic side. And then on the other side, what, you know, in the past we would call personnel or what I call smiles and files. And that's, we would, some of the places I had gone into as a consultant, they were more on the smiles and files side. And we came in and did Mm -hmm. some of the more strategic change and organization design and development work. And that was where my passion was, because I think it's actually the most, the most impactful for the business. So I finally, when I came to Bristol-Myers Squibb, after a couple of other roles between consulting, I was convinced that if you're going to do it, if you're going to do it anywhere, Holly, do it here. And once I became an HR generalist at the time, now we call them business partners or people partners, I was hooked and I've never looked back. And that was, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I finally made the leap. And that, that big change, JP, of going from 
kind of 50,000 feet as a consultant and things look so clear at the top, right? And well, I don't know, we'll just move these thousand people here and move those thousand people there. When you actually go down and you're on, you're on the ground level doing hand-to-hand combat and you're worried not only about the thousand people, but you're worried about the administrative assistant of the executive you've just displaced. And it makes it so real and, and real, the, the human in human resources became really poignant to me. And so that was, that was a really big growth eye-opening piece for me of going from strategy and theory and ideas to practical, tactical implementation. And actually that's where the rubber hits the road on business is actually going from idea to execution. And that was, that was really notable for me. And then also being kind of at the right hand of the person who is running a company, I just fell in love with that. And that's, that's the piece of my role that I continue to find the most engaging and exciting. And sometimes it can be really visionary, which is great. Before becoming a CHRO, what role had the most impact on you or your development as a leader? You know, when I was at Bristol-Myers Squibb, my last role before I made the leap to become an HR generalist, I had a role that I still to this day think is the coolest title. It was a Director of Leadership and Change. And I had joined the organization from the outside and they put me into a role, which was a really big risk for them. I think about, I'm still in touch with the, the CHRO who, who did this. Um, he took a big risk on me, but they mm-hmm. partnered me with the CEO at the time of, of Bristol Myers. And the CEO was relatively new in role. He had grown up in the company and he was going on a, basically a world tour within the company to gain the hearts and minds of the top 300 executives. It was brilliant. We had about 26,000 employees at the time, and he was going to mobilize the the masses through the top 300 people. And he wasn't just doing it through 300 people. He was doing it through 30 people at a time. And so I was tasked with creating everything from, you know, designing and executing you know, everything from pre-work to who sits where at dinner, like the from strategy to execution on these leadership forums. They were three-day forums. We did 10 of them. And if you think about that, it's 30 days of a CEO's time. Now, that's a huge investment. And huge. Um, and he met with, now there were other people engaged as well, but basically it was for the vast majority, it was, it was him in a room with these 30 people. And we really focused on strategy, execution, and culture. And it was actually a great design. I look back on it still. But that experience was really the first time I'd been in rooms with CEOs. I'd presented to CEOs, but I'd never spent 30 days one-on-one with a CEO before. And some of that is you're kind of in the wings when he's on stage. And some of it is when you're both in the wings when someone else is on stage or there's an hour of downtime and I got to sit with him, or I was flying to Shanghai next to him and nothing like flying to Asia to really make sure you get to know somebody. Um, (laughs) But you know, what I got to see in that, in that experience, JP was, I kind of got to be behind the velvet curtain and, you know, a lot of people make the assumption and logically make the assumption that CEOs or other senior executives have all the information they need to make a decision. And that, I think one of the biggest revelations for me in that position was I got a front row seat 
to how a CEO of a major Fortune 500 company was making decisions. And it wasn't like he was making them without information, but he was making decisions based on information he had. And I would see him pivot on a decision that, you know, well, a patient would write him a letter or he'd get a, a note or a phone call from a sales rep in the field. And he would make decisions based on that. And so the insight that I had in that one role actually changed the course of my career, I think. It, it was since it was the last job I had before I became an HR business partner, I felt it was my duty to actually partner with my leaders to give them my point of view, because, because the best thing in, in a leader can do in making a decision is have more information. And so my mm-hmm. point of view was just as valid as the patients or the sales reps or somebody else's. And so I approached my first role and haven't really stopped as an HR business partner as speaking truth to power and making mm-hmm. sure that my point of view was just part of the chorus. And, you know, oftentimes they, they can take it, they can ignore it, they do it what they will with it. But I know that the decision is going to be whatever decision that leader is going to make is actually better because he had one more, he or she had one more piece of information. And so that actually, I think, as I reflect on my career was probably, it was only an 18 month job, um, but it was probably the most tangible in terms of pivoting my approach to how I've I've approached everything since. I'm grateful for it. And you mentioned speaking truth to power. Tell us about how you approach that. It sure does take courage, but you know what? I've realized, gosh, part of our jobs, and you know this similarly for you as a talent person, part of our job is to be students of what makes people successful, right? And my insights, both from my own experience, as well as from watching, developing, coaching, promoting, terminating senior executives is there are patterns that you see, right? And while if I were to look holistically at the number of people I've sat across from and had to let go from however many companies I've been at, I've let more people go for not doing things than for doing things. And, you know, Say more about up, that. I mean, whenever you're up at bat, there's a chance you're going to strike out, but there's also a chance that you're going to get a home run. And that the coaching that I give a lot of executives, including to myself is go down swinging. Don't get walked because you know what? You get walked enough. You're not going to be in the batting rotation anymore. And we're all here for a reason right? I mean, we were all hired for a reason. If you find yourself in an organization or find yourself in a situation where your voice is too loud, your voice is too strong, your voice is too different, then you're not in the right place. And I've had to make, I've had to make decision, a decision on that as, as well in my career, I can speak truth to power. And I've been in a place where, um, that, that truth wasn't welcome or that that candor was not appreciated. And sometimes you have to find the place where your talents are recognized. So, and that, but that takes courage, but it takes a lot of courage. You know, the other piece I would say is ultimately the best leaders seek out the advice from the people who tell them what they don't want to hear because they know that's going to make them better. But that takes courageous leaders to do that as well. And not all leaders are courageous. 
You know, some leaders want to be, they want to be surrounded by yes people. And that's just the reality. Ultimately, they're not necessarily going to be as successful or not successful at all. But, you know, the best leaders who I would argue are the ones you really want to work with are those who are going to constantly be learning. They're going to be taking a beginner's mindset. They're going to be seeking advice and guidance. And they're going to seek out the people who are going to tell them not only what they want to hear, but what they don't want to hear and what they need to hear. Every person, every leader has their own way of absorbing information and you need to make sure that you are being thoughtful and sometimes it's planting a seed and backing up and you know, don't make a decision right now. I'm going to give you a point of view. I don't want you to react. You know, there are different ways of doing it based on any leader's you know, pot- potential proclivity to accept, gen- accept and digest and react to news. But I think it's, I think it's our duty in, in this field to really be the be the backbone of a company. You know, oftentimes people will say that HR is the soul of a company or the heart of a company. I prefer to think that we're the spine of a company. I like that. I think you covered a few things in there that are really important. One, understanding your executive, who you're working with and what her style is or his style and how you actually can approach that. What's going to work for them? Probably also assessing how bad is the news the program they put together, what is that? But I think your point's really valid. That is the role. It's really important. And I think it differentiates you in terms of not being a yes person, really speaking the truth to power in a candid way. Because I think you have to have the intent, right? Positive intent of this is, I want the business to be better. I want the company to be successful. That's why I'm bringing this up. It's not to embarrass right. somebody. I think that's really important. The intent has got to be, that trust has to be there. Right. That's totally work. agree. And obviously never in public, always with the right intent, always couched in um, couched in context and understanding intent and, you know, all of that. It's all, the delivery is super, super important. But shying away from, from tough messages, I think, in the long run doesn't serve anyone well. What advice would you have for somebody who's aspiring to be a chief human resources officer or a chief people officer, which is a more fun title now? Right. You know, and what does it look like? What what should they be thinking about if you aspire to do that? I think my advice for someone aspiring to the top of the HR field is frankly the same advice I give to others aspiring to the top of any field. And that is be curious and know the business, learn the business deeply. I think that the best HR people are business people with an HR and talent skill set. And, and over time, I think more and more companies and more and more CEOs are seeking that out. And you can see that, right, in terms of the trends of, of who, are, who are being pulled into CHRO roles. Um, more and more people are actually being brought in from outside the HR function, which I think is, I think it's, it's good and bad. I think it's good because mm-hmm. it means that our leaders are expecting more of the person in this seat and they expect and want someone who is in the trenches with them and really understanding the business. The bad side is it's sad that they can't find that within the existing ranks of, of the human resources function. So my advice to those in the pool of people who are going to be being chosen for this next generation of leaders is be business people. Go and do, if you can, go and do a rotation in sales or marketing or operations. Run a PL if you can, even if it's a small one. 
if you if that's not on offer and it's usually not do everything you can to immerse yourself with the first and foremost the financials wherever i go the head of financial planning and analysis or fpna becomes my right hand person and i kind of partner with that person i go deep 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 on the on the income statement to a lesser extent the balance sheet but i understand where our revenue is coming from how we make money how we lose money where the levers are how we calculate our operating expenses how we calculate our capex or capital expenditure what we actually put in into the difference between gap and non-gap meaning the differences between what is formally accounted for externally and then how we calculate our results which is the non-gap the adjustments between gap and non-gap are different by each company mm-hmm. truly understanding those levers from a financial standpoint helps you understand the business and then helps you speak the business because I assure you the CEOs that you're going to be working with or any senior leader who you're going to be working with they live and die by the numbers that they're being held accountable for so the more you can be at their side and basically making sure that they know that it's keeping you up at night as well that's how you build the credibility and actually that's how you get the insights to be able to help drive the business for the mo- in a lot of companies the biggest driver one of the biggest drivers I'm in a people business right now at Cushman and Wakefield, um, people are 80% of our operating expense. And so, and that is not unusual. I mean, we're a professional services firm, so it's high on the higher end, but in most places, the, the human resources are a significant part of the operating expenses of the organization. And so the, most, the more we can help a company ret- uh, attract the right people, maximize the impact of those people, and minimize the turnover of those people because the cost of turnover is real, the better you're going to be able to help run the company. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, I think learning the business is really important. I think you really broke it down how to do it. You know, what comes to mind, and tell me what you think about this, is really starting young. So if you think about if you're going to invest in your 401k and you get compounding interest, right? Investing now over 30 years or 20 years of your career, that really can be the difference between a really successful retirement or not. And if you think about early in your career as an HR you know, partner, talent, talent acquisition, L&D, total rewards, comp analysts, they probably are mm. better at this than most. You should start learning the business now, right? You just, yeah. it, you're, you're under the radar. When you get to a more senior level, if you don't really love and know the business, it's a gaping hole that will probably stop you from going farther. But when you're That's early sad. in your career, you can do it. You can start learning and growing and it becomes second nature. But if you start earlier at that level of business, I think it really can continue throughout your career. And it differentiates you because a lot of people just don't focus on as much as they could. It's a great analogy. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. Beyond learning the business, tell me what you think about, are there roles that are more critical to prepare yourself to be a CHRO than others? You know, because I more now, you've got people coming. In fact, I think the latest State of the Union of CHROs by Zach mm-hmm. uh, Upchurch and Talent uh-huh. Strategy talked about people coming out of talent, total rewards, not just HR journalist roles. So it's a little bit broader, but are there things you're like, if you haven't done this role, you're not going to be a CHRO? It's a really good question. Earlier in my career, when someone pulled me aside and said, I think you can be a CHRO, because it was not my original it's not my map. And the advice they said was, choose the, choose the long pole in your tent. What are you going to be famous for? What are you going to be 
really, really known for and focus on that. And at the time it was, you know, talent management, change management was my change navigation, what have you. That was my strength area. I actually, I view it a little differently. I think to be super strong on one area, it's kind of reminding me of, you know, my kids in applying for college, they say, you need a spike, you need a, you need a brand. What's your brand? That There is something true to that. You need to, you should be deep in one area for your confidence if nothing else. But I also believe like any you know, skyscraper you build, the taller you can go, that the bigger your foundation is, the taller you can go. So making sure that you actually have that breadth to get technical into the HR world. The best specialists have been generalists. The best generalists have been specialists. So I strongly encourage um, anybody, regardless of how where you want to go directionally, to have a foot in both of those camps. And the specialty can be talent acquisition. It can be talent management. It can be um, it can be comp and ben. It can be HR operations. But have a specialty that that you can really claim to and then understand how the thought leadership and that specialty gets played out and executed with the business. So both sides of that coin. That being said, and I I think that can tee you up to be, that can tee you up to be chosen for the job. My first CHRO role, I went from having um, probably six or seven years as an HR generalist and everything before that as a consultant and I'd never done compensation. I'd done I'd done comp within my role. I'd never done executive right. compensation. And there's in a public company, there is a lot of focus with the board of directors on executive compensation. It is often the the only view they have in early days of the person in the CHRO seat is when they go to the compensation committee of the board of directors and talk about executive compensation. And so that is a technical, nuanced, deep skill set that as you, as folks kind of get up to the, the ready now phase, making sure that you've got exposure and mm-hmm. a guide and someone to really teach you the ropes on that. Make sure that before you are a CHRO, you have exposure and a really strong coach on executive compensation so you're not learning it on the job. Yeah, that's a good insight. That is one of the areas that it's hard to get experience It is prior to actually having that role because only the CHRO and your VP of Total Rewards typically have that. That's right. So how do you get some experience or exposure if they're not in that top seat? Yeah, you know, I think a couple things come to mind. One, one is ask for ask for guidance and coaching. I've had people on my team say, you know, I really want to get exposed to this, and I partner with them. I partner them with the head of total rewards. It's an ask of your head of total rewards to coach and mentor their peers. But that's you know, I think it's all of our job to help each other grow. You know, the other piece is there are organizations like Center for Executive Compensation that is a key one, and they offer training kind of boot camp, often for new CHROs, but also for other folks who are ready now that you can you can do. And I would highly suggest that it's and, you know, there are courses out there as well. A lot of it is kind of self-taught because it's very technical. It's 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 technical. Yeah, there's, but it's there's important to regulations. Know. Yeah, it's really important. Yeah. Really good advice. I think that's helpful for folks who are trying to fill that gap. But I love what you said about just becoming a CHR really is around breadth and depth. And whether you're a specialist, to journalist, and flip-flopping, I think it's a making the case that a lateral move at some point in your career is okay. 
it's not always about trying to get the next promotion, but it's really about how do I expand more laterally, understand the organization better, understand other parts of HR. Because if you want to be a CHRO, you have to understand all how all the puts and takes work together. I, and I would just double down you know, more than it's okay. I think it's absolutely necessary that if people who go up a ladder end up really missing a lot. And, you know, I, I just... I use the analogy, it's the best careers are not career ladders. It's you're on a rock wall, right? And sometimes you got to go down to get a footing and to be able to reach the next level up. And sometimes you got to go over, but it's really, it's much more getting experiences from different places. And if I could just add, you know, as I look at, okay, thanks. Um, (laughs) As I look at, as I kind of look at my career and kind of the roles and thinking about the rock wall and getting a foothold here and a grasp there, What's interesting as I look back is I never had a job. I never had a job that existed before I had it. Um, before I was a C, even actually in my first CHRO role, it was different when I had it. And that wasn't that wasn't by design per se. It was, you know, if I were if I was in a position, I would I consistently looked for things that needed to happen in the organization, kind of. How are we going to make the biggest impact here? And, or what I call jump on the fumble. If you see something not happening, pick it up and run with it. And that was how I approached my career. And it really was not for a, an empire building or a land grab or personal ambition. It truly came from, I wanted to make the biggest impact I could for the company. And there are a lot of things that needed to be done wherever I was, right? Wherever anybody is. And so ultimately, I would just pick up things and say, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then it would get tucked into whatever job I had. I think there are opportunities for anybody to go into a circumstance and say, yes, and, you know, this is my day job and this is this is what else I'm going to do because I think it's the right thing for the company. And meanwhile, you're getting your own experience by crafting your own roles. Yeah, I think that's really, it's brilliant. And I think what you're really good at is identifying the opportunities and matching that back to what the company needs, but how you also, it benefits you. Personally, mm-hmm. you had an investment, you wanted to learn something more, but it also the company was like, wow, that's going to help. And mm-hmm. I love the idea of just really, each of us can craft our own role. Even if you're an HR business partner for a different business unit, how you do it is up to you. You can find opportunities to say, we're going to do this program. Or you know, there's a lot of creativity that I think goes unused. And so it's an opportunity to really think creatively about your job. So it's a great inspiration. One thing I know about you is you are an incredible mentor to lots of folks. And I'm curious about how how you would go about finding, identifying and finding a mentor. I'll start by saying I I haven't in the course of my career had one major mentor or sponsor who's kind of shepherded me along. I also recognize I have the benefit of having a twin sister. And someone talk about, you know, not truth and power because I don't have power, but truth. We we both speak unvarnished truth to each other. And what has helped us is for every success that she has professionally, and she's very successful. She's a, a chief legal officer of a company here in Chicago. For every success that she's had, you know, I am not only happy for her, but I also say, well, she doesn't have anything I don't have. She's my identical twin. So we, we challenge each other through... Um, through cheerleading each other up, basically. Like, if I can do it, you can do it. If you can do it, I can do it. And and so there's there's been a lot of that. And I think if, if I were to give that advice, I can't tell people, go get an identical twin. But I can say, go find the person who's going to tell you what 
you don't need to know. Go find the person who's going to tell you the equivalent of you've got bad breath. They're going to tell you the things that people don't want to tell you. And once you find that person, if you trust them, hang on to them because that their perspective is going to be going to be really helpful for you. The other piece I would say is you're connected with someone for a reason, a season or a lifetime. And you never know which bucket someone's going to fall in until you kind of progress. And so seek out and connect with people for a reason. If you're on a team together or you're working on a special project for someone, connect with them. And then where you find those natural connections, stay with them for that season. And as long as you are adding value to them symbiotically and then they can add value to you, right? And eventually you're going to find the very small group of people. I'll say you're in this bucket for me, JP, who end up in a lifetime, oh, right? You've, you. you've gone through enough seasons and then you know this is this is going to be one of the people who are going to tell me I got bad breath or tell me what I don't need, want to know and, and really give each other strong advice. So that would be, I wouldn't try to find your one, your one special person. Hey, if you can, fantastic. Um, but I'd say seek people out based on the skill sets, the perspectives, the experiences that they've had that can help you with your current issue or current problem or current goal. And then be purpose-driven on that. Great advice. And I think you're really calling out this myth of mentorship. There's one mm. person. Right. That's going to solve everything for you, help you develop, help you grow your career. And there is one person and it's actually you. Exactly. Right. All right. My last question for you. What is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Return on investment. And you know what? Here's why. And it goes back to my original concept of be a business person with a talent or HR mindset, we are as a function ultimately here to help companies be successful. And those companies are going to be successful the more driven they are by purpose and impact and everything else. Um, But the value of the work that we do, it needs to be shown in terms of the return on that investment. So how are the, the decisions that we are suggesting the investments that we are proposing and the focus that we believe needs to happen on the people in an organization, how is that actually going to drive value for the company? There are different ways to look at that value, shareholder value being the clear, obvious one. But there's also a significant movement, and I am fully behind it, on the role of corporations playing a larger role in the world. And so that that value proposition can be the impact on society, the impact in communities, the impact on the planet, the impact on your employees, and ultimately the impact on the shareholders. So making sure that you can frame what you are proposing, frame the work you're doing, make a business case for it, and make sure that we are providing an ROI. It goes back to actually back to the beginning where I started out as a consultant at the end of every day every 10, 20 hour day, you had to write down how many hours could be billed to the client. And it was a personal reflection at the end of every day on, all right, I may have worked 18 hours today. Was I, did I earn my ridiculous hourly rate for all 18 of those hours? And when I say ridiculous, that was what the company was charging for me, not what I was getting, but it made you really assess the value that you were adding. And I think we should all be measuring ourselves on, are we delivering the value that we are um, 
that, you know, the value that we need to for an organization so that the organization can deliver the value that they have for their stakeholders. I love it. Return on investment, the future of HR in the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Holly, thank you so much. We learned a lot today. I think it was incredible. I appreciate you being vulnerable, telling us more about your story, your incredible mother mm-hmm. and sister. <laughs> so thank you so much for being on the future of HR. Well, and JP, just before we go, I just, I want to thank you for doing these podcasts. I'm thrilled that you are putting your voice to elevating and amplifying voices in our field. I truly believe that this function is, I truly believe that this function is the future of business. And I love that you are creating, creating a podcast to make it happen. So thank you for doing it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Holly Tyson for her insights on speaking truth to power and her advice for aspiring chief people officers. As always, you can go to thefutureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show as well as what potential guests and topics you'd like to see in the future. That does it for this week, but we'll be back next week with Mark Efron, founder of the Talent Strategy Group and co-author of the Harvard Business Review bestseller, one-page talent management and eight steps to high performance. In our conversation, Mark will share his unique career journey, what led him to co-authoring one-page talent management, what separates the best HR leaders from the rest, and why the future of HR is all about high performance. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.